Hi, and welcome to Beta's monthly podcast series, How We Listen Live in Conversation. My name is Mark Brown, and I'm the founder of Vita.com, the platform enabling sending and receiving of digital audio in a clean, simple, and secure way, built for everyone working with music today. Vita's goal is to provide artists and their teams with the tools and the knowledge to help move their careers forward. We believe anyone interested in working in and around the music ecosystem should have access to as many insights into the business of music as possible. The best approach is to try and do as much as you can on your own before you hire anyone or start building your team. How We Listen Live in Conversation is presented in two parts. I present the first part and offer up some of my own experiences in the music industry. Then the second part is an in-depth conversation with someone deep within the music ecosystem. We talk about how they got to where they are and the insights they picked up along the way. Our guest today is Phil Lutzis, AWOL's VP of Community, and he is now the longest serving member of staff at AWOL. Phil helps indie artists build their careers. Part of his role includes curating content to help creators and managers make the best use of their resources. His work at AWOL is also about empowering artists by supplying great support and the right tools. We chat about how Phil went from being a touring musician back in the day to helping artists and their teams do a better job of planning their own releases. Here's our conversation. Phil, where are you? Are you there? Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. All right. So how's it going? Are you a bit ill? Yes, I'm a bit ill. I don't have COVID. Um, I've got good. Um, but yeah, I'm pretty good at whinging about it. When I get a cold, everyone knows. <laughs> well, there's a but, good yeah. hundred more people who know, so it's perfect. Um, yeah. But look, thanks, uh, thanks for joining us. And as we do normally, do you want to just tell us a bit about your background before we get into what you do? Um, tell us a bit about your background and how you started working in music. Yeah, so I um, I was in a band for um, a good long stint. Uh, just after I left uni, I moved up to Sheffield in the north of England to to sort of pursue a, a, a career in, in in sort of electro indie band. Um, I spent a long time doing that, loving it. It was brilliant, and you know, potted around doing all the things that you do in a band. Um, I, you know, I, I learned I learned a lot during that period. It was quite a weird time for music. That weird sort of you know downloads was, was becoming less of a thing, and streaming started to creep in. Um, so it's an interesting time for the music industry. But <clears throat> I then I moved in to start working at AWOL in two thousand and eleven. So that's where I am now. So I've been there for ten years, and that's developed a huge amount over that time. You know, it was a, a very small sort of team of maybe eight people and then then Cobalt bought the company and then you know we've sort of developed all, all sorts of interesting things since since then um but yeah so that, that was my journey sort of into the music industry you know when I was in a band um not so much in the industry as such you know we're very pig-headedly doing us weird weird music up in the north of England and and um yeah it was absolutely fab but I, I think yeah, then then started to learn about the industry proper as part of AWOL. Did you have a manager? Did you do it all yourselves? Or yeah, we did. We did it all ourselves. Um, there was we were a three piece, and you know we did things like you know we were gigging a lot and we were recording and making records, and you know I think um, incredibly energized, incredibly ambitious, incredibly clueless. Um, and it was, it, 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 the holy know, the, trinity the holy trinity yeah yeah and then 
you know, so so our hearts were in the right place and our energy was was good, um, but we didn't really know what to do. Um, I only really mentioned that not by by any kind of false humility. It's absolutely accurate, but also it's what led me in the direction that I, I I've I've gone in, which is you know supporting developing artists and and labels. I have endless energy for and and just get a huge kick out of doing it because that's that's exactly where I cut my teeth in music, and um so that's you know that's that's my focus at at, at AWOL is is um helping independent artists, managers and labels sort of make their way in the industry and, and, and hopefully get into a position where they're sort of um, able to keep making the great music that they make. So, so just quickly before we get into all that, for the people on here who maybe don't make music but want to work in, the, in, the, in sort of the music ecosystem or music tech or something, how did you get from being in a band to working at AWOL? Because the way you explain it, it's like just five seconds. Oh, well, I was in a band and then I mm -hmm. worked at AWOL. And I think a lot of people think that's a very long journey. Like, how do I get my first in? So can you just quickly summarize how you did that? Well, I can, yeah. I mean, what happened for me was being part of the music community in the, in the city um, I was still in Sheffield at that time, um, meant that when a, an opening came up in AWOL, and it was very much at the bottom rung, you know, they just needed someone to come in and, and help them with, you know, ripping CDs and things like that, because that was still a thing back then. <laughs> and, um, you know, so <clears throat> when, when I got that opportunity, um, it was not a lucrative one and it was not a secure one. Um, but it was in an industry I was interested in and it was at a company that seemed interesting. So I immediately said yes. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I just invested a lot of time and energy in it. You know, I was I was incredibly ambitious and energized from the get go there. I was very excited to be there. So, um, you know, it wasn't wasn't obviously a brilliant opportunity when I started it, I suppose. But it, it looked like the right opportunity for me. So I was I was super excited from the get go. And, and, you, and you said it wasn't uh, like it wasn't a stable opportunity, but are you not the longest serving member of staff at AWOL? Yeah. Wow. So 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 in high in hindsight, it was it was very stable, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It was very it was very stable. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think uh, it, it's 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 very funny to imagine, you know, that I could not have foreseen that that. Um, that whole uh, journey was was a, a surprise to me. Well, I think you, you know, I I think that's the, the challenge with any, anything in life. But I certainly think with anything in music, it's extremely difficult to look into the future and figure out what to do. And I like the the first thing I thought we should talk about. Because I think, you know, we've talked before and I think what a lot of it's we seem to agree on the fact that what a lot of artists struggle with is is this idea, not what the the next three, four, five steps are, but what are the first steps anyone takes? And I think so you're saying when you when you started out, you didn't think you, you couldn't see into the future. You didn't know how well it was going to go, et cetera, et cetera. And so I really want to focus today on talking about the like the first steps the things that really you, you need to lock down and the one thing that comes up every conversation that i want to talk about first is this idea of release plans 
because I always tell the story of my friend who works at um, an aggregator in, in Canada. He always says, oh, these artists come to me and they say, I want my music out by Monday. It's Friday or something. I want, I want it. I need it out right away. And he always laughs and says, that's the worst thing you can do. And so you deal with a lot of artists at AWOL. So what do you do when this kind of release stuff comes up? Because do a lot of artists know right away what to do? Or, and if they don't, like, how do you go about teaching someone about how to release a record and timelines? Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 a really, it's a really interesting question. It's such a big one. I might end up sort of wandering off or rambling in the wrong direction. So feel free to sort of nudge me back in the right direction. I'll ring you in. I'll ring you in, door. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, it, it depends what people are, are trying to achieve, obviously. And, and you know, those, those caveats start at the beginning of every answer to, to these sorts of things, don't, don't they? But the... Um, the way we sort of deal with things with with you know uh, an able artist or, or or label is you know the best practice will kind of outline what best practices are and i know that for us it's quite similar to the sort of advice you would tend to give if if, if my knowledge is right if, you know we want four five six weeks lead time is is a is a really smart move um, there's loads of stuff to put in the, the four, five, six weeks before a release goes out. So, so getting assets delivered nice and early, that's a great, a great idea. So really simplistically, we'd throw that piece of information down at the beginning of our relationship with someone, if that makes sense, you know, that, that kind of runs through our, our sort of educational tools. But after that, then things, you know, all bets are off, all, all sorts of things are happening. So <laughs> You know, if, for example, when you're working with them, um, because one of the things we do at AWOL, for, for anyone who doesn't know, is we do distribute music for, for people. Obviously, AWOL is a very, you know, sort of complicated and broad, broad company doing a lot of things. But the when when we're sort of um, distributing music, if you if you if your track is suddenly blowing up on the radio or you've suddenly got synced on the first episode of Stranger Things 4 or whatever it is, you're suddenly blowing up we would want to help you get it live immediately. I mean, we're not going to say, no, we're not releasing it for four weeks because that, that would be madness. Um, so it's definitely the case that we have our rules and we break them regularly. <laughs> we, we, we break them for, for really good reasons. Um, so I think that's, that's an, an important thing to think of. And, and um, but what you, what you sacrifice when you do a super quick release like that is you can't fill in the Spotify playlist submission tool in time. And you can't send the music out to all of the sort of the blogs that you might want to perhaps premiere the track. And, and there's a there's, there's hundred things you can't do when you do that. So you sacrifice a lot of your market impact. You know, a lot of the splash points that you would have in your campaign get lost if you don't have a good timeline ahead of release day. And so, like, you mentioned assets. Let's just talk about that quickly. Like, what are the, what are the key... I know this is basic, but I everybody always forgets something. So, like, what are the key things that you need to have in place? Like, well, I think yeah, from from a sort of literally a, a delivery standpoint, having your cover art and your audio and your metadata, and you uh, having all of that nice and early, so six weeks out, hopefully, and, and delivered that early if you can. That's one set of assets that are really important to have up and running. Um, I'd suggest. And here, you know, I'm, I'm talking about, I'm often coming at this from the standpoint of maybe you don't have a huge team around you. 
maybe you don't have a separate marketing team or press team or something running the campaign. Maybe that's something that, you know, you're doing as a manager yourself or the artist is doing themselves. But assets like photos for all of your marketing efforts, I'd be inclined to try and get them all in a folder that you and the manager or you and the band can easily access from the get go, because all the way through your campaign, you're constantly needing to, you know, fire something out on Instagram or you want to send something to a blog, or whatever it is. So having those assets very early on in the campaign, I think, is a smart move, too. And similarly, I'd be starting to think about some of your video content fairly early. I mean, it's less less of a concern trying to get your short form video sorted ahead of the campaign, because most of the ways you use short form video now are going to be much more live and spur of the moment. If you're using Instagram stories or, or TikTok or YouTube shorts, whatever it is, then you, you don't need to plan those ahead of a release. Um, but other more sort of official videos, you can try and do it a little bit earlier. So like, I, I, I guess what you're saying is, is like, think what you might need and try to get it ready in advance because when you need it, you need it right away. Is that sort of the vibe? Like the people, the people you work with, something gets going and they get a little interest and then someone says, oh, do you have a press photo? You're like, oh, uh, I don't, or that's mm. happening this weekend or in two weeks. And is that how you lose opportunities and stuff? Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 partly that, and it's partly that um, it's really difficult to get everything done um, when you've got a smaller team. Like just it, just logistically, it can be really challenging. Time time is one of the um, other scarce resources alongside money um, when it comes to running campaigns effectively. So having it all ready to go does mean you can just do everything a little bit quicker, and that again means you'll miss out on less less opportunities. And um, yeah, yeah. So exactly that. So like back when you were releasing records, you dropped what, an album every year, two years, maybe? Is that how, what was your release schedule like back in the day? I, I, I can't remember. I, I, it's, it's quite it's a long not time. that long ago. Yeah. It's not that long ago. Um, yeah, I mean, what, we sort of dropped like a four, a four track vinyl and then did like a four track downloadable EP. I think it was before streaming. Um, yeah, I, I, I really, it's, it's, it's beyond me. I think the way the way I would approach things now and, and you know, is, is very much I'd probably look at when I'm wanting to release um, release a track. For me, I generally would prefer to release track by track rather than look at big releases, because um, that's the way um, that, that, that makes it so much easier to have so many more splash points for sharing music with your fans and, and helping to grow the audience. I'd look at when I want to, to release it and then start working backwards from there. When do I want to deliver this music? When do I want to share it on, on you know, on various different platforms? When do I want to start dropping videos and all of that kind of thing? So when you when you're like when you're talking to most artists and when you're looking around, are you seeing a lot more people releasing music more frequently, like one track at a time over a 12 month period or like? Because that's one of the things that I noticed that, that has changed massively for me. Like normally it was these waves of six, two waves of six weeks for singles and then an album will come. And, but is, is it now that people are chopping things up in the single after single after single? Like, what do you think is the most, knowing what you know, maybe about how some of the streaming platforms work, what do you think is most effective? Yeah, it's a, it, it's a really interesting one. We, we still see a real mixture. I think 
My, my sense of things is that AWOL is particularly artist-centric. It's a bit hard to put eyes on other companies because you're not in them. But, like, yeah. I think artists yeah. should carry on being pretty pig-headed. If an album is important to an artist, then it should probably be important to the, their fans as well because there's, there's normally some kind of connection there. Um, so I do think in the fullness of time, the artist should be doing whatever they want. Um, but, yeah, delivering tracks um, spread out, separate tracks, there's a lot of benefits to that, um, you know, things like um, there just being a lot more points where you can be shouting about a record. There's more opportunities for you to sort of pitch releases for inclusion in a playlist. There's more chance for premieres. And, and so there's there's that benefit or the activity that goes ar around each track. I also know we were speaking just recently to Sam Potts, who who. He runs, he's the VP of promotions at AWOL, and he, he runs the Global Commercial Partnerships team, and they're the ones who have relationships with store editors. And for lots of our sort of closest partners, one of the things they, they we asked him a specific question about, about this, and he was sort of saying that one of the things that's really useful for them and, and for curators is if you're releasing very regularly and consistently, then they can kind of slightly see the campaign unfolding and, 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 and they could sort of work with you multiple times if they're, they're loving the music. So because consistently releasing is useful, you can't consistently release an album once every six weeks for obvious reasons. <laughs> so um, splitting up the tracks can, can be really effective for that, for sort of cultivating those relationships. And it's not just store editors, it would be the same with DJs and, and writers and so on. We'll be right back after this break. Beta is the platform that enables sending and receiving of digital audio in a clean, simple, and secure way. Built for everyone working with music today. What sets Beta apart is that it is unrivaled in taking advantage of audio files' unique properties. What does that mean exactly? Beta reads and writes file metadata, plus it converts audio file formats and delivers fast, secure, and great sounding streaming. Create, promote, and discover with Beta. Made for music. When you're starting out, you don't know what the hell you're doing. So the the idea that if if you rewind ten years, you do two singles and then an album come out, and then it's all over. And if you're just doing it yourself, you, you know, imagine the way it used to be that people would go make all these CDs, and then they wouldn't know what they're doing. They wouldn't get any attention, and they're they're, they're flat to be lined with boxes of hundred count boxes of CDs. And I think. What's really good for I've noticed is this idea that if you're releasing music all the time, you can get better at what you didn't know, because I think like you're so good at saying, oh, yeah, like you just do this, and you do this and you put it in a place. And then and but for a lot of artists, it's so overwhelming to be like, oh, what do I do? And I forgot to do this. And then if you feel like you failed every time you've released something and then you have to wait another eight months to do it again. Like that for me is the best thing about this new system is that you can you can build on what you're good at, but you can also learn from what mistakes you might have made two months ago. Do you see a lot of artists sort of getting better and better on the fly? Yeah, I think that that's really fair. Like there's there's loads of points in there that I'd love to pick up on and flesh out, I think. The um yeah, the 
it's the same in all areas of life pretty much but it's the same in all areas certainly of music that you know you put one track out there you try a bunch of things you see what works and you do more of that you know that that sort of iterative process of doing it better is a great one so um for example you release a track and then the day it releases you try a little sort of um, i think we might come back to this later might we but you might try a little modest marketing spend on on that that product sort of share share with people a little bit and there's 10 different options that you've thought of that you might go down you try one or two of them with this track and they're both lousy and then you're releasing yeah. another track six weeks later so you don't you know you're not depressed about it you're just like okay cool learn that move on and then so on so you have that iterative approach and, and and that's the same with everything you know like how shall i be sharing about this this release um and so i think that piece is really important that kind of iterative improvement and i think you're, you're exactly right and we do see lots of that we see lots of artists trying things out and and it's exactly the same with you know huge projects like you know little sims or girl in red you know they'll be they'll be trying things out as as they go and seeing what works um but yes equally it's the same for people who are doing it for the very first time and it might be their first you know artist project so that's definitely true and that that second bit as well of um you know it is it is a tough tough industry and if you're sort of working for example if, you know if, if the setup is you're an independent artist and you're releasing on your own and you sort of release a five track ep or maybe even a whole album without very much build up it's incredibly deflating when that lands poorly and that happens all the time and it's not the end of the world that's that's fine it's often a part of of people's career that that they'll drop releases and it doesn't explode immediately but it is very exhausting emotionally um and physically so you, know, <laughs> you, you drop you drop those releases and and so the the use going track by track it can get you into a slightly healthier mindset of let's evolve and let's learn how we're doing it um, but that said, if you've done that thing of releasing the album and it's not gone well, you can still do things post-release to try and learn more from the, the, the tracks. Um, and you can move to track by track sort of later down the line with your next release. So I, th I think, um, yeah. But that, that's very good because I, I like how you're big on that there's still stuff to do um, after release. Because I think I, having come from a radio promotion background, it's always like, oh, the single's out over and and that's that's i think something that people struggle with so i i do want to come back to the, the paid marketing stuff so people emailing questions before in advance and so we've had one which i thought fit perfectly here so what is the best way for an artist to set goals when releasing music for instance i started releasing in september first song in one in ooh, interlude track i don't even know what that is which is build 120 spotify followers is that maybe that's some technical jargon I don't understand, which built 120 Spotify followers, the main platform I'm trying to build on at the moment. What would be a good number to set as a goal over 12 months? And this is from Tazzy, who's an artist. Phil, do you, uh, did I, I, I didn't read that very eloquently, so I apologize, but did you understand the question? Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, it's a, really, it's a really good question. I mean, it's, it's such a good place to start. And I think it'd be really good to sit down, like, you know, for everyone and, and before you start making that timeline which is exactly what you know um Tazzy's doing here before you make your timeline ahead of a release think okay well what do i want to achieve with it um <clears throat> and it's definitely the right goal there's loads of different things you might want to achieve um 
with a with a campaign and for some people it's much more sophisticated like i want to break through into another genre or i want to be considered an authentic artist in in this world or whatever it is um but when you're in the sort of very you know the, the development phase where you're really just trying to develop an audience this is exactly the right place to be let's think about followers on on the platform that you care about most or followers everywhere or, or, or um rather than thinking about streams or thinking about which playlist you get on or something. I, I think it's a much better metric to be concerned about. Um, <clears throat> and then thinking about what the number is, it's a little bit difficult to, to sort of say what I think that number should be. But I mean, you know, I'd say a thousand followers is, is a really um, healthy next step, you know, going up in, 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 in orders of 10. Obviously, I'm kind of picking that out of, out of the air, but I mean, it, it's, it's great. <laughs> It's a great next step, you know, and, and I think it's probably fairly well known, you know, like a thousand super fans is a great place to be. And, and you can build a great, um, you know, a great sort of career uh, with that as your foundation. Um, so that seems like a healthy next step if, if you're at 120 at the moment. Um, so, yeah. OK, cool. So, uh, like, I think. You, you know, even just thinking and talking about this a bit, this idea that you have to plan in advance. But that doesn't mean once the record's out, it's all over. Yeah. And then this idea that what you don't get right on the first release, you can fix on the next release. But I, I really like the reason I like this question from Tazzy is I like the idea that like to have a maybe not necessarily a plan, but a goal as to like, hey, I'm gonna, I'm, my goal is to try to achieve sort of this over a period of time, which I didn't. I hadn't even thought of it that way. I'm like, oh, I thought the goal was just to release, <laughs> to release music. But that ultimately is a bit naive because the goal is to, de to develop your audience a bit over time. And I think that's the thing that I find so intimidating these days, that it's equally as about making music as it is about figuring out how you're going to let people know that your music is out there and that it's good. So, I, so Tazzy, thanks for the question. But I, Bill, I want to ask you one thing before we go into sort of, sort of some of the DSP stuff is... This comes up a lot, this idea that we discussed with Hugh Stevens on the first How We Listen Live in earlier this year. And he talked about this idea of local. And, you know, he's from Cardiff, so he always talks about the record stores and all that kind of stuff in Cardiff and playing gigs there. But then he also extended that into this idea of local online. And I think, is that not what sort of Tazzy's on about? Well, if I have followers on Spotify or I have, you know, followers anywhere else, is that like, do you see that as something that you need to be doing as an artist as you're releasing music is trying to find ways to bring, bring people into, you know, close to you and, generate connections with other artists and other like people in your area yeah i think that's um that's a really good call i think uh one of the one of the areas that there are options when you're working um if you i'm taking spotify as an example because i know i know it quite well and, and building playlists on there is is um is very effective but it came up in in mike warner's book work hard playlist hard it's a really good book I would wave it about and show it to you if I had it with me, but I don't. But I, I, I highly recommend it. And um, but yeah, you know, he talks in that about using playlists really effectively with other artists that might be in the same group or genre as you. They might be at a similar level to you and and, and things like that. 
um, to sort of create something of a scene. And that might be local, it might be geographically local, but it might also just be super niche genre-wise or something like that. Um, what that looks like is as an artist or manager, you start developing a playlist, you know, and hopefully boosting its popularity. You make sure it's got the right kind of music on as in music that the artist is really loving. Um, it's got the artist on, but you start sort of collaborating with other artists. You make sense on that playlist. So we're going to add you to this playlist. Um, be great if you shared it. We're adding you because you rock and we like what you do. And you start, you know, building genuine connections. Like at the heart of all of this is a music and a love for a certain type of music and bringing the audience and other artists together. So that that approach to a playlist can be a very good way of maybe embracing a, a, perhaps it's a local niche, <clears throat> perhaps it's a genre specific niche. But yeah, creating a community around a playlist. And, and I think that speaks to that that local piece. Um, but as that playlist grows, you start to get a little bit more control. Um, the playlist itself could potentially become a very good source of streams, but it might be that it's more of a focal point for that, that community and it helps you develop a relationship with some other artists. Um, so I think there's, there's um, a bit of a virtuous circle there. Because That's one of the things I really like when we met a couple of weeks ago is this, when you talk, you talk about not necessarily, oh, this, this singular goal this success and failure, I'm trying to get on a playlist, I get on the playlist great, or I don't get on the playlist. And the way you've just explained that if you do your own playlists, that's a way to reach out to other artists, and you have something to talk about, and you build that level of community. So are there, do you have more, maybe like sort of tips and tricks about dealing with these platforms? but not focusing on playlists. Cause again, you know, we had Junior from Deezer last time and it was brilliant to hear the ins and outs of the way they work. But a lot of the time that's only one aspect. And I think you were really great at highlighting so many different aspects. So, so tell me the things that you discuss with artists you work with and people you work with that are outside of that normal playlist pitching type stuff. That's a broad question, sorry. <laughs> no, that, that's all good. I think, I think there's, um... There's loads to focus on, isn't there? Like the, the, it's a hugely important piece is the editorial support. Like we work super closely with, with different store partners. Deezer Rock, they've got a great sort of backstage area, haven't they? So they're, they're a really good example. Um, and the work, the work that we do that, we, you know, closely with the stores on a weekly basis is quite focused on the sort of music playlists. And it's fairly, it's, it's, it's a really important part of the journey for loads and loads of, of artists and, and projects. So that bit is, is, is super exciting. And I think the stores do an incredible job of curating what is a, a ludicrous amount of music. I think that they do a phenomenal job of that. But I do think, yeah, like outside of that, there's so much you can do that's, that's different. And, you know, one of the, um, <clears throat> I've got to cherry pick some ideas so I don't just talk forever. The um, one I really like is um, looking at trying to hook up with third party um, playlisters. That's a really good route in. Um, and again, in conversation with, with Sam the other day, this, this came up. But if you find someone curating a playlist and finding them can be tricky or they can make it, they can make themselves quite accessible. It depends who it is. Uh, but you find really great genre-focused playlists. A playlist inclusion on a playlist with a thousand followers, if they're exactly the right genre for you, 
that's incredibly valuable because those thousand followers, there's every chance they'll love the music you make and become the thousand followers that that we're suggesting, you know, Tassie tries to lock in. Um, so that as a bit of playlist support could be as effective or more effective than New Music Friday. Um, so looking for those third party playlisters is a really good call. And sometimes in order to sort of work with those, that can be a fairly involved process. You might have to develop a relationship with them and, and they are normally going to be really passionate music lovers as well if they're curating a good playlist. Um, and so developing relationships with them, I think, would be important. So that's um, definitely a direction that you can go in. Um, another one that's sort of a slight change of pace that I, I do know is important is, is around optimizing your channels on stores. So let's, um, well, I mean, we can go with Amazon, you know, they just, um, launched their new I don't know if the app was entirely new but I just downloaded it recently because they've got an option for you to pitch your release to them now directly now you know Spotify have done it and Amazon have done it and I think you know Spotify rolling out its playlist submission tool has done more to democratize music than than, than most things in the last few years and um, you know I think it's a really phenomenal phenomenal thing they've done there so Amazon have now got this 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 same sort of functionality and um, so, yeah, you go on Amazon or Spotify or whoever it is, you optimize your page. The stores care about that. They like to know that you're engaged. People who use that platform, they'll like to see that you're slightly fancier artist profile. You've pinned your important collaborative playlist up where you're working with your local scene at the top of the page. And when the release, you know, two weeks out from release date, you're, you're submitting it for, for editorial support with that store. So I think, I think that is a, a really important place to put put some time and energy. It doesn't take a crazy amount of time. And I don't suggest that you try and do it on all platforms. To be frank, I'm, my knowledge is limited on how much you can do on, on smaller platforms. But certainly to make some effort on Amazon, Apple, Deezer and, and Spotify, obviously YouTube. Um, yeah, I think I think that's that's going to be a pretty, pretty smart move. For some reason, Bandcamp has just popped into my mind. And I, like I find that for some reason we are like on these calls, we end up discussing the bigger platforms. Do you like since you deal with a lot of indie artists, do they ever talk about Bandcamp in what they're doing or like where? Because I know that it, it's big for music discovery. Like a lot of people buy stuff and it's good for supporting artists. But is it is it a good place for for discovery? Does it come up on your radar as much? Bandcamp's an awesome platform. I, I love, I love the 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 kind of the ethos and the approach on Bandcamp, where you know they're they're trying hard to find interesting genres. That you know they've got some great editorial on there. Um, you know, it's a very artist focused and music focused platform. So yeah, I think it's really good. It's a really good tool. Um, it's not one I work with really closely on on most projects. I think it's a little bit more merch focused than I tend to be. With most of the campaigns I'm looking at, um, but no, I, I think it's a, it's a really great platform and definitely worth investing energy in. And then somebody else had asked, like, what about like albums versus EPs? And so I wanted to ask about that, but I also wanted to ask, like, you must work with lots of different artists from different genres. So I was wondering if what your thoughts are on, like, what artists can do. Because I think like when I think about albums versus EPs, I think like 
you know, like traditionally metal bands would put out albums or whatever. And then other pop artists put out singles and stuff. And I wanted to know if you ever, when you're interacting with newer artists or new, newer bands and stuff, they, are there certain things that work genre by genre? Are there any insights you can think of off the top of your head? Just because I think it's so hard to give broad yet specific advice. So I was wondering if, he, if you were able to maybe give any insight on some nuances to show people how different it might be from genre to genre. Yeah, I think there's there's lots of um, there's just sort of an endless amount of inconsistency now, isn't there? Like everybody can, <laughs> can do it any which way you want, and and I think it's um, I think it's important to do that. So yeah, there's some stuff that happens genre wise. Like if you're working, I think for example, like if you work in a slightly sort of mixtape culture, like say say it's sort of um, classical versus grime or something i mean like it's obvious that one is albums and, and one you could release singles and you might release them the next day because it might be popping off on radio but that's unlikely to happen in the sort of the neoclassical world or something <laughs> um, so like there's, there's there's definitely that element but outside of that i think i'm always going to and it sounds like a bit of a cop-out but I, I don't think it is. I'm always going to say that the artist should do whatever they, they feel they need to artistically. I think that should be the, the most important piece. The The only caveat to that is um, it's a long time ago now, but I just still, I always go back to it because I just think it was such a beautiful example of it. The way Bruno Major did the sort of 12, I've forgotten the name of the album, but he did, he released one track a, a month for 12 months and it was like the different phases of the moon. Um, which will be the name of the title, but I can't I can't remember exactly what it is. But he sort of released a track a month. That's how he wanted to do it. It made sense for the artistic endeavour. Um, he just added them to a playlist as he went. So it's a little bit like waterfall scheduling, but quite an early version of that. A song for every moon. Um, yeah, it's a beautiful record. And then, yeah, it made sense. So, so like releasing tracks like that made sense with the artistic endeavor. And that's the sweet spot. I mean, if you can do, if you can sort of pick the way you deliver it for some good reason, and I don't mean sort of looking for some kind of hackneyed reason as to why you would release on Sundays versus another, but I mean, you know, trying, trying to release in a way that makes sense for something else you're doing around the campaign is probably, is probably the smartest way forward. Okay, cool. Hey, sorry to interrupt. I wanted to let you know that every one of these podcasts features a different guest. Each guest offers up great insights into the music industry. Like Mark's talk with Junior Foster, Deezer's Head of Global Artist Relations. Get an inside look at how streaming platforms work with musicians and help amplify their careers. Here's a hint. Community and hard work are key. Go listen to that episode to learn more. Um, now, Jamie, do you have those other two questions that we got mailed in? Oh, boy, here we go. We've heard that the DSPs do not like duplicate releases these days and that full album versions, if you have shorter edits for radio, etc., should be kept for the album release. We have also been told when the album goes in for release, if too many tracks are showing as previous re-released and not pitchable, etc., that could hurt the album, especially for marketing purposes. Is there any truth in that? So if you have too many tracks before an album, does it hurt you when you're going in for pitching? I think that's the question. I don't 
I don't think so. I don't. I don't know categorically. Um, so I'm not really able to to honestly be sure of my answer to that. But but I, I, my my opinion is based on some fact. The the if you take for example records like um, the Lauv album uh, that came out maybe a year and a half ago. Um, loads of the singles off that had been released initially, and it was a lot of tracks on that album. But like, it's an unrelenting pop banger after pop banger. It's a really, it's a lovely, it's a lovely album. Um, but yeah, loads of tracks had dropped and done really, really well, and and got lots of editorial support. And the album was largely made up of, of tracks that had been out before. Uh, the album still did fantastically and got lots of support. And when and when an album does drop, there is normally a focus track when it comes to the release day for the album. You don't sort of pitch the album in the same way as you used to in in the download world. You still have a, a sort of a, a feature track that you would be um, pinning the release date on when the album comes out and you just make sure that that's a track that hasn't been pitched before i think the this idea that um the stores don't like multiple versions of the same track um it's not i, I mean i don't know whether or not there's any particular concern one way or the other but but you you can't really go pitching the shorter version the radio edit versus the and the album version um, it's the same track, basically. I mean, it might make slightly some difference on a playlist that it's it's a little bit shorter, but realistically, the mindset to be in is you're pitching releases to a curator, someone who loves music, does this song fit in my playlist? It being a little bit shorter or longer is probably not the thing that's going to distinguish it. And so pitching it twice probably isn't very helpful for them. And in their sort of endeavours to try and um, deal with whatever the latest number is, 20,000, 60,000 tracks a day, um, do you know what that number is, Mark? It, it, it's it was forty last year, and now it's sixty. All right, sixty thousand. It, it doesn't fluctuate as much as between twenty and sixty, so it's bit, it's going up. <laughs> yeah. And um, so yeah, so um, I I I think trying to get other um, other opportunities to pitch a release by by sort of releasing a radio edit, I don't think that's a good call. I, I think that's sort of um, yeah, I, I wouldn't imagine that would be effective, and, and it might be slightly frustrating for the for the store partner. So, next question: shorter edits used to be the thing, and still is really, you know, for radio, and that makes sense because radio, that's the way it works. Has that moved on to streaming now too, or are are you seeing shorter edits get more traction when it comes to editorial playlist support, etc.? So that's following on from what you've said. Does it have the same impact to have to have a track that's shorter? it really gets to, into the chorus as soon as possible, like you would have in traditional radio? I think maybe there has been a trend. This is a tricky one. I almost don't want to answer it. Like the, <laughs> I've seen loads more like super short pop tracks in the last few years that maybe used to happen. But then if you go back ages to like, this is it by the strokes or something, those tracks are, are well short. And, and that's the one of the like punchiest, poppiest, sort of um albums so yeah I, I i'm kind of i think you've got to make the track as good as you can make the track i think that's by far the most important thing way, way more important than worrying about whether it's the right length for a playlist the reality is that pop songs tend to be pretty short um so if you're making a pop track that's probably likely the best length for a pop track but but yeah, you you can't put a rule on that, I don't think, can you? So I I think I'd be inclined to suggest you be quite pig-headed about it 
and make the track the length you think is appropriate for for what you're trying to do musically. I I really lo- I I think that's the second time you've used pig headed as as a piece of advice, and I think that is the very but but, but you laugh, but I think it's super important that you know as an artist you need to make music the way you want you want to make it do you know what i mean and i th- i think if you're looking to follow whatever you think will get you to a certain point it's a bit, it's a bit of a dead end road so we've had another question just come in from terence so for someone releasing our first songs once you release on spotify can you then do a release on itunes then on deeper or is it at an industry ta- taboo so i think what what terence is suggesting is can you release on what one platform first and then go to another one but i'm assuming you would you there wouldn't be any benefit in doing that would there there isn't much benefit in doing that that i can think of um we used to see we used to call it store windowing we used to see it all the time yes so if you'd slightly have this competitive vibe between stores and it'd be like apple would say or oh, you know if you release just with us for the first month then we'll give you put you on the front page or, or something like that but um, we stopped encouraging that quite a long time ago and, and we certainly don't see it really anymore. Um, there's a whole bunch of reasons, I guess, like to put super simply, the gains that you would get at the platform you go to first for sort of premiering it with them, you lose at all the other stores. So it, it's kind of, um, it's unhelpful there. And also we don't tend to see audiences drifting across multiple different platforms. So you tend to be a Spotify user or an Apple user or an Amazon user. Um, and I, I'm, this is random conjecture, but as an aside, I bet we see that start to change a little bit because people are getting so familiar to having multiple TV subscriptions. I think we might start seeing people drift across music platforms, but that, that's an aside. But generally speaking, if you're just on Spotify, all of your fans who don't like Spotify and use Apple, they won't be able to hear the track, so you just annoy them. Um, so if, I think that on its own is reason enough to sort of just try and release on all platforms at once. On your your um, prediction about multiple platforms, I, I felt that's what was interesting about when I talked to Junior from Deezer last time, is that they focus on certain things. They focus on local, you know, their thing is a local hero. And and I had never thought of it that way. And I, And I think you have a very good point that, People are much, you know, used to having, well, like how many chat programs do people use? You know, it's insane. So that totally makes sense. But now my question, because I, this, this single releasing stuff, I like that. Um, I like snail mail. I don't know if you've heard of snail mail before. They're on, um, they're on Matador and they, they release tracks like one at a time. And and then, and then, and then, but then they're part of an album. So it's it's like it's linked. The first track is released as part of an album, and then and then another one gets added to it, and then the album comes out. Does that make sense? So I got really back to your answer about the, the, the in re, in reply to this question of you know singles and albums. I, I is it not very confusing the way people do <laughs> these single releases in advance of an album? So they start to like. So what happens is it has an album track. It's a tag name and then and then you have one track in this album and then another one and then suddenly it becomes the album so i can't figure out if it's just one track or if it's an ep or if it's going to be an album does that make sense it's i don't know if you've seen that before but it's i find it very confusing 
Yeah, snail mail is a good call. My, my mate Wilkes shared that with me the other day. Um, they're really good. People should go and, go and check them out. I think it was a video he shared. They do okay. videos, don't they? But um, but yeah, I, I wasn't paying attention to their scheduling. And, and actually, that that's really relevant. I think most people aren't paying any attention to the way the releases are coming out. They just sort of, um, they just drift into your world, you know, however you're listening. So for me, you know, personally, I, I, I tend to, on a weekly basis, I do some discovery on Spotify. I jump into my release radar playlist and the discovery playlist, and I fumble into new tracks like that. And whether it's part of an album or not, I don't know. If I start hearing a new track by Dean Lewis or Alec Benjamin or whoever it is, I think, okay, well, maybe they're about to release an album, but I, I don't often think about it much more than that. So the fact that the tracks start drifting out and is part of an album or not, musos like us who are a little bit more perhaps a bit more focused on it we might then jump into the artist program and, and check it out i have lots of people might not and so whether or not the tracks are coming out and they're going to be part of a longer album over time is probably irrelevant to a lot of people who are listening but um yeah i think to the to the point of of how that works classic waterfall releasing um there's a few different approaches, but one, you, you sort of drop track one as a single, then six weeks later, you drop track two with track one as a B-side sort of thing. And then six weeks later, you drop track three with tracks one and two, and the bundle just gets bigger and bigger. And the benefits of that, I mean, there's multiple different ones, but when, when you know, you get to track four, you release track four as a single, you're pitching that and what have you. But also as you're marketing that release, if somebody hits play, then they might just play through all four tracks. So instead of sharing just one track with them, you share all four. Um, it's, it, it's simple little things like that can be, you know, sort of slightly helpful for getting, you know, four streams instead of one stream um, and, and, and so on. So that's how waterfall releasing can, can work and be effective. So now, because we, we, we've been talking for a while here, but there, I, there's a couple things, other things I want to talk about. And one of them is, this idea of paid marketing, which I think sounds super scary because digital marketing sounds like you need to be a scientist to do it properly. But the way you articulate it, it sounds super easy. So I want to talk about why I think it's so scary and why you think it's so easy and, and what you know that I don't know and why you think it's so important that artists get on it right away because that's what you're advocating right that that artists experiment with a little paid marketing to start yeah yeah i, th I think um i i it's sort of i completely understand why it's an area where there will be some inertia where people struggle to get started with um it looks like a lot of money for for nothing um you've, you've no idea what's going to work and what doesn't probably if it's your first time um, and so, yeah, it can look it can look really challenging to get started, but there are multiple different ways that you can sort of dip your toe in the pool and, and try and work out what might be effective and what might not. Um, so what I probably what might be useful is to maybe, to maybe suggest a couple of ways in um, that, that could be effective. And one is um, you need to be very cautious with the, the whole um investing money in, in playlist pitching tools and, and things like that but it's not it's not super difficult to spot the things that are a bit risky 
So okay, how do you do that? Let's be let's be clear. What what's the best way to spot the risky stuff? Yeah, if if a platform is saying if you give us some money, we'll be able to give you ten thousand streams or, or or a million streams. Um, they they must be getting them in a way that is dubious because you can't guarantee that through marketing efforts realistically. Yeah. I mean, unless someone is committing to just keep marketing something forever until it gets to that streaming, but but no no business model would really support that that I'm aware of. And um, so, if somebody's guaranteeing streams, probably run a mile. I, I think I think that's fair. Um, I suspect they will get more clever than that in the future, and and it might be slightly harder to tell. But for the moment, that seems to be an effective way of avoiding avoiding um the trickier platforms. Ones who aren't necessarily guaranteeing things, but, but but maybe do guarantee that curators will have a listen. Um, you know, with I think um, playlist push or um, is is a, is a platform I've worked with. Um, Submit Hub I've worked with. Like I didn't have great results from from Submit Hub necessarily, but I got tracks on genuine playlists that that had followers on and, and things like that, and it was very reasonable. It's easy to get a foot in the door. You don't have to commit a lot of money, and you do start to develop relationships with small playlist cur curators. Um, so I think I think having a look at that can be really good, and remember that that's something that you can do before release or on release day or after the release is out. So one of the things that is, is really common is that the release comes out, doesn't do quite what you want, and the whole thing is relatively deflating. You don't feel like there's a huge amount you can do. But post-release date, you absolutely can start looking at, at, at trying to share the release with people more effectively. And using things like Submit Hub or Playlist Push um, is, is, a, is a good way to, to get in there. Um, so I think, I think having a look at something like that is a really good idea. I think a second option, um, a company I, I worked with recently is called Boost.com, and the O's are zeros in 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 the um, in the address Boost.com, and it was very simple. I was able to share, share a link to the music and some artwork, and I, I just gave I think fifty dollars, which was their minimum, um, which is very little, but the the results were great. You know, I mean it. it people were clicking on it and they were going through and listening to the playlist that I was sharing on that link. Um, so that was a really effective way in. And I'm not an expert and I don't have lots of time to put into it. I had to move quite quickly. When I say I'm not an expert, obviously I, I know a little bit about marketing, but like I work with lots of people who are genuine experts and I'm well aware that their knowledge dwarfs mine. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I think starting with that has made me feel very confident that it, it, it's quite easy for you to try um, a modest spend with marketing and then you start to feel a lot more confident and then once you've done that the idea of taking second steps the second step in as we were sort of talking about it weren't we mark but like the, those two could be like a first step into some paid marketing once you've done a little bit of that the idea that you then maybe start to do ads and start to do things a little bit more complicated like well let's let's test two different ads and see which one i get a slightly better hits on or i get a slightly sort of cheaper cost per click um then you can start to do that next but i think starting with these simpler simpler ways in it is useful and i think even if you're right at the very beginning it's it's a perfectly logical thing to be doing from the get-go it doesn't make sense to spend thousands of pounds straight away that would be over the top it makes much more sense to spend a little bit of money and sort of see what works and then build on that. And if things aren't working, don't keep doing them. Um, you know, abandon that technique and try something else. Uh, and, and another piece of um, advice that came up 
I was shooting some some sort of training material with some some of the experts in in the audience development team at Able the other day. Um, I wouldn't want to share too many spoilers because it's very secret, brilliant information. But like the one of the things they all said separately, pretty much, was if you're looking at thinking about when to put some marketing spend behind something on socials, just see whichever's kicking off most organically. Um, which is obviously very solid advice. And, and once you've heard it, it's really bloody obvious, but I, I don't think I knew that immediately. So if you want to know what, what to put your marketing spend high on Instagram, look at whichever one had the most hits or, and so on, on, on Twitter or, or, or YouTube or whatever it is. But then, but then, so like the summary for paid marketing is you're spending money to try to achieve results. So what you want to do is try to match your results to the money because you mentioned cost per click, which sounds very, advertising speak or whatever but but that really all that means is is that i spend 50 dollars and i got x amount of playlists on submit hum or something and is that what you do you just you take the money you spend versus what you achieve and then you just try it in a couple different places and see oh i spent more money here and i got less clicks but i spent less money here and got more is that basically it yeah i think when when it comes to the 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 when it was like boost.com and it was just a case of I was putting some spend behind a link that I wanted people to click on, then then I had this sort of very obvious data point as to whether that was effective. When it comes to something a bit more nebulous like Submit Hub or any playlisting stuff where you're just like, well, I, I got added to this sort of tin pot playlist where not really much happens, um, or I got added to this slightly bigger playlist, a bit harder to tell whether you've been effective or not. But because you've hopefully done that sort of project, you know, the part of the process that we did earlier that, that Tazzy mentioned, you've thought, okay, well, what am I trying to achieve for this campaign? It's boosting followers. Maybe that should be the thing that you're really trying to do with all of your marketing. Let's keep keep looking at that. And maybe then that's how you measure it rather than because you've got you've got to pick some way of measuring it in order to choose whether it's doing what you want. Okay, cool. Awesome. There was one last thing I wanted to talk about because I I it, it's something we've sort of loosely touched on in other events, but we've never really discussed it properly. And I, I, we sort of ended up discussing this idea that how like stressful, I think this came from when we were talking, uh, when we met was the idea that, you know, you can work with artists together to collaborate musically, but you can also sort of reach out and collaborate with artists on supporting each other. You know, do you hear from a lot of artists how hard they find it or how challenging and what coping mechanisms maybe come up with people you talk to about how to negotiate? Because it's basically, this is overwhelming. <laughs> you know, all the stuff, all the info you're giving, all the stuff you're talking about. How, what's the stuff you hear as far as learning to cope with all this kind of pressure to learn, to get your music out there? Yeah, I mean, I start... The, the educational bit's always been fascinating for me because of that period of my life where I was in, I was a band not knowing what to do, like I said at the beginning. So that, so that, that was close to my heart was the educational piece. So I've been in and around panels and, and whatnot for a really long time. And one of the things I was noticing was that every time you go to a panel, you, you, you sit down for 40 minutes in front of a new panel of people who tell you you've got to do this, 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 and this. Um, and then you sit down in front of another panel where they tell you do this, 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 and this. Um, you've got to be killing it on Twitter and Instagram and yeah, MySpace and Facebook, or like you know every single platform. MySpace is an in joke, sorry, <laughs> but like you know 
you just I was watching people at all of these kind of panels and things just getting increasingly f just stressed out and freaked out and rather than leaving um, a day of education thinking great I've got a bunch of new tools understandably lots of people who weren't in a really up ebb that day you know they weren't feeling yeah. maybe super energetic and excited about everything which loads of us aren't loads of the time they just leave thinking great I've got a massive massive to-do list I can't possibly get through um, <clears throat> and that's that's a really a horribly challenging position to be in so you know you've got you've got a kind of a meeting of a bunch of different things as as um an artist or a manager it's it's like you've got all the challenges of working in a tricky industry which the music industry is tricky then there's a bunch of other challenges because it's a, a you know because of the nature of it it's often late night it's often chemically fueled and things like that so there's a challenges coming from that but you're also trying to run a, a business in a really difficult sector that is part of it i mean if you want to fund making more albums you've got to be running a successful business out of your art like there's there's a lot of there's a lot of challenges going on there so i'm probably preaching to the choir i'm, I'm sure everybody knows how how challenging it is but whether you're sort of like <clears throat> you know working as a manager or as an artist lots of those challenges we have in common and it's absolutely critical to be working with other people if you're going to try and um be consistent and consistency is really helpful not just in this business but in all businesses but like the consistency is really key but you can't be consistent just on your own that's why a team of people is really useful and you might not be able to have a team of people for your specific artist project if that's not sensible for the business really early on. And that's when you need to be collaborating with other people. So whether it's you're collaborating with a bunch of other artists in your city with a playlist and with gigs and stuff like that, so you start to get to know them and lean on each other a bit. Or, and I just see, I saw earlier that MMF are with us, the Music Managers Forum, which is a great organisation for getting very smart very ambitious managers together um you know joining a group like that can be really impactful um you need something like that in order to sort of i think help weather a lot of the challenges and the mental health challenges we've all faced um in the last two years has become a very normal conversation to have which is nice it's nice that that's a little bit more regular now um but yeah in in, in music we've got to be we've got to be very supportive of each other i think um, and the collaboration is is key to that. No, I, it's cool. I think like it's so good to acknowledge just how difficult it is. And I, I find so many events I do, and this is the reason why we do these events, is that it's just like you're saying, you, you, a lot of artists or new managers, people want to work in and around music, they go to these events and they say, well, do these 10 things and then bingo. And you think I can't even get past one. And I think you're, the reason I enjoy talking with you is, is that you're very good at, well, first off, it's that idea of being pig-headed, which I think is exceptional. I think that's the way it needs to be, that you need to make music to make music and you create music and then you work with the environment you have. But I also really appreciate that you, um, that you offer different, roots around things and i think for artists that's the most important thing is that you can't just go in the direction that everybody's telling you to go be it musically or be it the, you know, the strategy because not everybody is going to succeed using the same set of tools or set of plans as everybody else it's the perfect way to finish to be also <laughs> 
to highlight the fact that it's not necessarily going to go as well as you expect it to. And that's all part of the, that's all part of the plan in a way, because I, I really think behind the scenes, artists learning to talk to other artists about how, what they got right and what they didn't get right is probably the way to go instead of looking to, you know, other people all the time for those kind of things. So I just wanted to, I, I wanted to end on that because I thought you had a really good point about that when we talked about it. So Phil, I want to thank you for uh, taking part. It was a real pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me. I always appreciate it. It's, it's, it's lovely to be a, be a part of this. Um, so yeah, uh, an absolute joy as always. Hey, it's Mark again. Thanks for listening. I want to thank our special guest, Phil Lutzis, AWOL's VP of Community for taking the time to chat with me. I also want to thank our partners for this event, AWOL. Plus thanks to Jamie Ford from BIPA, who makes sure every conversation goes off without a hitch, as well as Colin McKenzie, our podcast producer and editor. Music is by Finn Productions and Oliver Liu. The How We Listen Live In Conversation podcasts are brought to you by BIPA.com. BIPA enables the sending and receiving of digital audio in a clean, simple, and secure way built for everyone working with music today. Each month, I speak with someone new who works in and around the music ecosystem. The live online series takes place on the last Tuesday of every month, is free to sign up and attend. Come and get in on the conversation. Go to beta.com for more information. Thanks for listening and get in touch with any questions.